Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, as my pretty bride likes us to say, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded and a time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, my partner Ravinder is here in the studio with me, looking gorgeous as usual. So, Ravinder, say hello to everyone and tell us, why do you like this, you know, world of shoes and ships and sealing wax? Well, that that is so funny. First of all, that's a bit of flattery going on there, so you're after something. Hello, everybody. I'm sorry about that. Um, shoes and ships and sealing wax. Yeah, every time you have the, in the introduction, and I always write it down because being a former biologist, I take notes for everything, so I always write that down, and it always makes me smile. I think it makes me smile a little bit because the first time I heard it, I thought sealing wax was actually the ceiling as in the ceiling above you as opposed to ceiling wax um i don't know why i like it i just think that's just a great expression for for the world it's just it's just normal it's just down to earth it's just the way things are um yeah it makes me smile every time i love it sorry (laughs) sorry all right in this week's spotlight i want to discuss something many take for granted For years, there has raged an argument on college campuses across the globe. Since the subconscious appears to make more than 90% of our choices, is there really any such thing as free will? The fact is, ever since the pioneering work of Benjamin Libet and his observation of cortical evoked potentials, specifically the P300 wave, scientists have theorized that the conscious mind is the tail being wagged by the subconscious. In other words, and the hard data bears this conclusion out, the conscious mind makes up reasons for why we do what we do out of an inherent need to understand the world. The conscious mind is busy confabulating reasons for everything, while the subconscious is activating our choices. Well then, If this is true, how is it that we can say we ever truly invoke free will? And if we do, when? I have addressed this issue on many occasions with scholars and derived this conclusion. What is in your mind is the source from which the subconscious makes its decisions. An FRMI technician watching your brain activity while you make a choice can actually know what you will decide on average six seconds before you know what you will choose. So somewhat analogous to a computer, the subconscious makes its calculations based on what is in your subconscious. As such, all of those negative thoughts and beliefs, all of your defense strategies, avoidance tactics, compensations, and so forth, enter into the calculation. Given this, it's easy to understand why it's so important to control what goes into your mind. 
In my book, Choices and Illusions, the subject is taken apart in detail, and many steps are offered to correct it. However, for our focus today, consciously choosing what you put into your mind is of the utmost importance. Taking in all the negativity that media can offer is therefore ill-advised. You really don't need to hear about sickness commercials or watch Get Even Violence or hear about your deficiency because you don't have this or that product. Just remember, when you fly off the handle because someone cuts you off in traffic or in some other way infuriates you, ask yourself, what is my programming that causes this? In the classic movie, 2001 A Space Odyssey, it was AI's programming that caused its behavior. Al's AI. Our own biocomputer can and often does sabotage our best intentions. So, here are a few practical things that science has shown can turn this all around for you. First, Mindfulness training will allow you to become aware and change your negative programming. Affirmations, subliminal programming, hypnosis, meditation, etc. will facilitate changing the way you talk to yourself. Making it a habit to wake up and say thank you while you put a big smile on your face will bathe your body in endorphins and put an optimistic outlook on your day that strengthens your immune, endocrine, and optimal operation of your ANS system. Singing for 10 minutes releases stress and buoys you up with a flurry of endorphins. When you make an effort to present your best positive self, you will build likability. This leads to a community, including all of the service personnel that you deal with in the grocery store, the bank, the restaurant, and so forth, and a sense of belonging, which in turn leads to a long, healthy life. Five simple steps we can all take at no cost. Remember, if you are to have any free will, it will come as a result of what you have chosen to put into your biocomputer, upon which the calculations will be made. Change the content from G-I-G-O, garbage in, garbage out, and you will change the outcome. Those are my thoughts. I welcome yours as always. What about you, Ravinder? What do you think? You know, um, that's the basis of everything we do. That's the basis of the work we've done for the last 30 years is taking conscious control of the programming in your, in your subconscious mind. Um, it makes it makes a vast difference. Um, I look at my own life and everything I've done and everything I've achieved, and the bulk of that comes down to putting into practice all the stuff that we teach. I've still got more to learn. There's always, you know, you can always reach higher. Our, you know, what we always say around here is how high is up, and that's what my life is about, and that's what I like to teach too. All right. Well, it may be. A bit of a cliche, but in very many respects, thinking is destiny. Absolutely. We're going to talk about some destiny that has to do with expectations all around the educational system today. 
one of my favorite subjects, uh, and I'll put education in quotation marks because, well, you know I have issues with that. All right. Every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Our last show featured Mark Anthony. He did some very impressive stuff. Richard wrote, great show. I kept trying and trying to get in on the phones, but it wasn't meant to be. Man, was he spot on over and over. Lisa wrote, I loved the show. He was amazing. Tom wrote, I can't wait for him to come back to your show. Well, Tom, he'll be back in September. He'll be taking your calls again, and we'll just see how that goes. All right, moving on. Lauren wrote, hi, I love your InterTalk programs. And Jackie wrote, for years now, I've been stuck in a rut and getting nothing accomplished in my life. So I began listening to your Prosperity and Abundance InterTalk program all day and at night while I was sleeping. Third week into listening, I started marketing again and working on my business, working daily and having a routine down, which I felt was difficult to do before. And I credit your InterTalk program for it. My business has grown exponentially. Thank you for helping me get my motivation back. Well, thank you, Jackie. And Ravinder, there's an example. I mean, we sometimes get our our minds just slow, you know, can't get to it today. I just don't feel like it. Maybe I'll do this, you know. And and when we do that, when we allow that stream of consciousness to deteriorate our excitement, our motivation, our enthusiasm, our tenacity, etc., well then, thinking is destiny, isn't it? It absolutely is. All right, now to today's show with Professor Pavandingra. To let, so let me tell you a little about uh, Dr. Dingra. First, he's a professor of American Studies at Amherst College. He is a former curator at the Smithsonian, is the author of multiple award-winning books. His most recent is Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough, and that's the subject of today's show. And you're going to want to get this book. If you've got children or grandchildren, you're going to want to read this, and you're going to want to augment some of the changes and recommendations that he has. Um, it is a great read. He, all right, back to Professor Dingra. He and his work have been profiled in the New York, in the New York Times, National Public Radio, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, and many more. Professor Dingra is a sociologist, earned his Ph.D. from Cornell University, he joined Amherst College after serving as professor and chair of sociology and professor of American studies at Tufts University. All right, on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Professor Pavan Dingra. Hi, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. No, it's indeed our pleasure. Listen, you, you heard me pitch your book, and we'll get to your book in a minute, but uh, we like to learn three things from our guests on this show, Professor. What is the message? Who is the messenger? And how do we use the information? To that end, please share with us what you're passionate about and why. That's a great question. Um, so what I'm passionate about is understanding better why certain groups uh, have doubled down on education in ways that others um, in neighborhoods and around the country um, find troubling. So I'll, I'll be more specific. We have this stereotype of the tiger parent, one who 
is so focused on education that it's actually to the detriment of their children. And there's a lot of conversation about how that's hurtful for kids, how there might be some ad- some academic benefits, but the other kinds of costs. We realize there's other better ways of parenting. But in all this conversation, we actually have not heard from parents who actually do double down on education and prioritize it among above other things. Yes, we know about some kind of uh, high-profile books that are more sensational than in, than in informative, but we actually don't give time to listen to those whom we're critiquing. And so I wanted to listen to those people who, on the surface, are ones you would, you would caricature as tiger parents and hear their uh, motivations, how much they care for their kids, and also talk to a lot of teachers, other educators, school principals, um, people inside and outside of the school system, about what they think about this practice of doubling down on education, even for young kids. And I talk to the kids themselves. What do they think about um, having to spend time after school in other academic settings? Uh, What do they like about it? What do they dislike about it? And so I wanted to bring to light this new trend that we're seeing in education of more and more after school studies, uh, and at the same time, try to get past some of the stereotypes and caricatures that we use. I think you did a great job with uh, detailing exactly what you discovered in your book, by the way. Uh, you heard today's spotlight. It seems that one of our challenges in this day and age is sorting truth from fiction while maintaining uh, some sense of inner balance in our lives. Do you think we tend enough to our thoughts, the content of our minds, the motivation behind that, or do we find ourselves living unhappily as a result of misguided expectations and beliefs? Uh, I don't think that we spend enough time reflecting on why we do what we do. We tend, we oftentimes, you know, we don't, we give a thought. We're not irrational or um, overly socialized creatures, but we don't necessarily question some of the assumptions we have uh, that guide our behaviors. And part of the reason for that is that we may have been raised in a similar way. So our assumptions around what makes a positive life, what makes a positive upbringing for our kids are things that we've just internalized. Or it could be that we look around us and we see certain patterns and so we accept that as normal. Or it comes from other sources. But I think what we need to do, not just individually but at a societal level, is question what assumption, our assumptions around what do we want uh, for our kids, and I'm talking about kids because that's what my book is focused on, um, but it could be for anyone. What do we want out of an education system? What do we want out of a community, right? And if when I don't think by if I don't think that you know if you don't question those assumptions and you kind of follow certain expectations, that you're inherently unhappy. But I do think that you could be happier. You could unlock other form, other pathways, and other potentials. If you, and if, if not just you, myself, uh, question some of the habits that we've taken for granted. If all of us question, I agree totally. Uh, I want to get to your book and to specific questions on your book. But first, I've got a couple of others. You're a pretty prolific guy, and some of your opinions and ideas can be somewhat controversial. In a recent article you wrote, quote, Governor Andrew Cuomo has earned high marks from many in regards to his coronavirus response. But in the realm of public education, he has made a serious mistake in partnering with Bill Gates to reimagine education, close quote. Now, 
I'm not going to take issue with you regarding Cuomo's treatment of elderly at risk, and I don't think you intended uh, in this comment to refer to that, but okay. Um, Please unpack for us the problem with the Gates Foundation proposal. Oh, thanks for bringing that up. I know that uh, Bill Gates is, you know, a major influence, um, obviously internationally, nationally, but even especially locally where we're talking. So uh, Bill Gates has been, um, and and I'll be specific about the Gates, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation work on education, which uh, they themselves, Bill Bill Gates himself has written, has made major missteps. Uh, For instance, in the effort to create small classrooms which led to major changes in, in, in schools across the country. Uh, years later, he wrote that, uh, published you know, a piece saying uh, it did not have the results that he intended, that, they, that the foundation thought, thought that it would. Uh, now it's become around teacher quality and teacher measurement and um, evaluations. Uh, and a lot of teachers, I'm, I'm not speaking, um, I'm, speak, I'm sharing what I've heard, uh, kind of find that they're being more and more critiqued and under attack because of some of the assumptions that his foundation has promoted. And so there, there is reason to question the Gates Foundation's work in education per se, and to assume that someone of his stature and his knowledge and his expertise uh, and his wealth uh, inherently carries the answers to certain questions that we have, I think is misguided. And again, I can point to some of his, um, Bill Gates' own writings uh, to that point. So, and the piece ends to say that I don't think I'm not suggesting that Bill Gates or others um, do not have others outside of education don't have a role to play. They can, but to put them in the driver's seat and ask them to reimagine education as uh, Governor Cuomo did, I think, is a mistake. Gotcha. I, I, I would totally agree with that for what it's worth, but that's not my expertise. I have passed to your power. In an article published in the Journal of Intercultural Studies, you wrote, "Quote." The children of immigrants raised in the USA, i.e. the second generation, have become a central focus in understanding immigrant adaptation. As a result, second generation Indian Americans further their Americanization in overlooked ways and more deeply than expected, close quote. Now, I have two sons who are both computer engineers, graduates of University of Washington, and my wife is from India. She is Indian, so... I have some personal interest in your insights here. To drill down some, please flesh out for us these overlooked ways. Oh, yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, and I appreciate bringing up that article, which I I forget the date on that. But it's anyway, it's really great to, to reflect back on that. Um, so some of the overlooked ways, so some of the most standard ways we think about assessing uh, how Americanized uh, the children of immigrants or immigrants become are through like are they speaking uh, what's their preferred language at home is it english or is it their um, native or their heritage tongue um to what degree do they marry someone of their own ethnicity or they marry outside of their ethnicity those are some of the more standard ways and there are others obviously of assessing uh how americanized immigrants have become and their kids have become but there are other ways we can think about this um besides those kind of more blunt but still useful measures so for instance even if a group wants to maintain this ethnic language uh, and prefers to speak it at home, does not mean that they aren't uh, aren't Americanizing and assimilating in various ways. So, for instance, even asking your children to go to college and 
hoping that they will, you know, uh, you know, maybe even, even asking kids to go to college can lead the kids to be to uh, out of the house and maybe far uh, far away from the house into another part of this country, uh, another part of the state at least, and. When they do that, they're outside of the family realm and they end up meeting people who are different than them and end up forming relationships that Americanize them in ways that parents can't anticipate. Well, another example would be people who are in the workplace. Uh, even if I speak a language at home and I'm very committed to my culture and I want to maintain my uh, heritage through my religion and through whom I marry and how I raise my kids, doesn't mean that when I'm at the workplace, I'm not actively asserting myself in a way that fits the expectations of what standard employees do. So I can be quite Americanized in realms that you won't think about because you're just focused on one way of assessing how ethnic, uh, how how traditional I am. Even gendered attitudes can change over time, and we see a lot of evidence of that, which as women are spend more time in the United States, their attitudes around gender roles change. And that's another kind of subtle way that people can be Americanizing that we don't normally capture. So there's different ways in which this can happen um, outside of the more standard ways, uh, standard measures we do. Okay, it, it's a bit of a follow-up. You know, our university, uh, particularly right now, seem to be instructing our students, uh, their students, in the notion that America is inherently bad. Um, you know, and, and I, don't, I don't know how to approach this other than uh, when I speak to my sons, their peers, and, and you know, one is 21, the other is 26, uh, their peers, the folks around them, uh, they're all part of the protest groups. Uh, they hate America. They think, you know, uh, America is evil. Uh, they're, they're educated today, and they're both honor students, so they went through the honors program at UW. They're both educated that you know um the evils of america are not something that uh, older generations have really been informed about and so across the grain they seem to be rejecting america how does that fit into this americanization yeah that's a good question so um there are ways in which you can become americanized that don't fit, uh, you can Americanize culturally, that don't necessarily align with an ideology or with a politics. So even the, even the act of being educated in American history and having very kind of nuanced takes on, you know, I used to think America was, you know, X, and now I think it's Y. Uh, and I'm, you know, I may be involved in a protest movement that's local or national. Uh, then this, even the act of joining a protest furthers one's kind of entrenchment in the nation. So there's a way in which how Americanized you are does not necessarily correlate with how much you love your country. You may, you know, just let me have sharp criticisms of your country, but that doesn't mean you're not becoming Americanized in the process of forming and acting on those criticisms. So there's a distinction I would make between those, those two kinds of ideas, that, that makes sense. Okay, it, it does make sense. And I know, you know, the country is particularly divided right now. Uh, mm -hmm. But it also seems that it isn't just divided between uh, Republicans and Democrats, Democrats and Republicans. It seems to be divided between the the, the age groups, uh, young and, and, and senior citizens, particularly the values there 
seem to be entirely different. Is that part of our education? I mean, I think that generational change uh, is something of a well-established American tradition. So, I mean, I think that it's it's not uncommon, regardless of the of the um, moment, for teenagers and, and those in their young twenties to have a different outlook on the country than those in their seventies and eighties. So, I mean, that I don't know. If, I think that's a to be somewhat to be expected. Um, I'm not sure Our I guess. Go ahead. Yeah, educational. We're stepping on each other. Go ahead, sir. I apologize. Please go ahead. I apologize. Our educational system was essentially copied from a Prussian system in 1812, and it's well known to be a tiered system. And when I look at the system, and when I listen to what you're saying. Are you admitting that it's more about socialization than it is genuinely teaching people how to think? Uh, no, I would not suggest that education system is about socializing youth into a certain mindset rather than teaching them how to think. I think that um, as we learn more about our country's history and about you know other social facts or social trends, then we may... Uh, start to question some of the things that we learned in the past. Um, and so we may revise or even re and rewrite our history books. And so there's, you, I'm not su suggesting that education is just an objective transmission of, of facts and knowledge that's not shaped by its social conditions. But I do believe that when education is working well, which, you know, so, you know oftentimes it is, students are not just being, are not considered vessels to just implant information and then be assessed by their rote memorization, but instead are being taught how to think. And that's one of the major reasons, one of the major um, questions that we have around uh, how well educated someone is. Less about what they believe and more about how well they can defend what they believe. Okay, that's a good answer. I'm reminded to have a very famous statement the victors write the history books. We have a hard break. When we get back, uh, we'll pick it up. We're speaking with Professor Pavan Dingra about his work and book, Hypereducation, Why Good Schools, Good Grades, and Good Behavior Are Not Enough. Again, this is a great read. Go get the book. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting his website, pavanhingra.com. Now, let me spell that for you. P. A-W-A-N-D-H-I-N-G-R-A dot com. Pavandingra dot com. All right. Do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. New scientific research has repeatedly demonstrated that the power of your mind can do wonderful things if you believe in yourself. Indeed, it can literally change the brain, increasing cognitive abilities, rewiring connections, and even adding gray matter. And all you have to do is invest a little time in tuning your mind. The perfect toolkit for just that is the patented and proven effective InnerTalk technology. InnerTalk changes the way you talk to yourself and that changes everything. For when you truly believe in yourself and your own abilities, magic happens. InnerTalk has over 300 programs to choose from, 
ranging from health and wellness to prosperity and success, from accelerated learning to relationships, from habits and addictions to spirituality. Remove the doubt and fear now. Go to innertalk.com today. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're chatting with Professor Pavan Dingra about his work and book, Hypereducation. Uh, now, I, I gave you the wrong website. Uh, let me correct that. You can learn more about our guest and his book by visiting Pavan H. Dingra. I left the H out, so let's spell that. P-A-W-A-N-H-D-H-I-N-G-R-A dot com. You can also just search him, uh, use Google, and you'll get all kinds of links, including pages to get to his book. All right. Every week we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some real meaning to them. Uh, music psychology, as you know by now, is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas. It is a special interest to me. And so your chosen music, Professor, is Talking Heads. This must be the place. So please tell us, why is this music important to you? And more importantly, how mm -hmm. does it inform us about who you are? Oh, I'm not sure. That's a great question. And by the way, thank you so much for asking uh, for the song. It was a nice touch that I really uh, thought it was really sweet. Um, and I'm not sure this, the song speaks that deeply about me. I, I like the talking heads. I kind of like the musical movement in which they were part of, that kind of post-punk uh, new wave movement when it started out um, and this song has is a softer side to them uh, while kind of being a sweet reference to how people can be in love and then once you find that person then you are at home um, and wherever that might be physically and so that's what I take the song to be I never really looked into it deeply um, anyway that's my own taking and you know I, I really like the song and I, um, I think we quoted from that song at my wedding so it had a special place for me well that is special then that's a pretty important song all right let's go to your book what do you mean by hyper education oh um so hyper education by that i mean as i mentioned i think at the very beginning more and more families we're seeing a new normal i would say in parenting especially among middle class or higher income families who are putting their children in after-school education. And that can be like, um, I'm not sure if you've heard of these Kumon learning centers that are really popular. Yes. Um, like there's, they're all over Seattle. They're in, you know, Bellevue, Renton, Kirkland, every, a lot of places. Um, as an example, I'm not trying to focus on them per se. Even though your kids are doing just, kids are doing just fine in school and they may attend schools that parents are, you know, relatively happy with. There's a sense that, Parents want their kids to be in extra education outside of school because you just don't trust that the kids will be competitive in education or get an adequate education otherwise. And so we're seeing parents put their kids in these after-school learning centers at a much faster rate than normal than before. Sorry, um, and we're seeing parents put their kids in academic competitions, uh, even if the kids themselves aren't 
personally drawn to them as much. And I want to understand, well, what is this new normal that's impacting our school systems? When we talk to teachers and other educators, they see this going on and they see the impacts in their classroom in ways that they don't always appreciate and sometimes are quite worrisome. That's what hypereducation um, refers to, this new normal that we're seeing. Because it's not just you know, soccer and, and you know, gymnastics that your kids are in. It's also something else, academic. And, what the, and why it matters, right? Just to quickly get to that. Um, it's yeah, especially in- why does it matter for people that aren't involved in it? Exactly. That's exactly what I, I, I start with. I make that very clear, and I want, I'm glad you let me um, focus on that. A lot of kids aren't doing that, so why should you care? Because even if you're not doing it, kids in your school are doing it, and it's raising the academic pressure of what it means to be good at a subject. Right? It's not as good enough to be mastering what your teacher's telling you because people are learning more than what the teacher's telling them outside of school, and that raises the bar of what's considered strong academically. Uh, the other thing is that it, as people raise up the academic standards, the academic pressure goes up, as do stress and anxiety. Some of the most anxious kids are those who aren't in after-school education but are worried they're falling behind because their peers are in after-school education. And one last reason it's, it matters is that as parents say, you know what, I'm in a fine school, but I just don't trust it. And I want to make sure my kids are getting all the education that they need. So I'm going to pay for an after-school learning center. It's another attack, not necessarily intentional, but implicit on our public school system as able to properly educate our kids. And why that is so significant is that when we talk about the problems in our public school system, even before remote learning, we're talking about primarily those who are underserved, under-resourced in our schools, lower income, uh, students of color, those in rural areas, or what have you. But we would assume that students in you know, well-ranked, well-resourced schools, are they're, they're not the ones we're worried about. They're being served by this school. And yet these are the families I'm studying who are actually saying, no, the school is not serving us either. So it seems the school can, serve, satis- school can satisfy no one. Right. And people are looking for options outside the school, in the private marketplace um, as a result. So there is a concern about where does our education system lie? Are our schools doing enough, even when we think they should be, even when they they think they are? Yeah, I had my sons, my wife and I, not just I, in in public school. In fact, we homeschooled uh, the first four grades and then moved them into public school. And then in high school, public, well, actually middle school, because it, it was middle school, uh, where I was told, you don't want to keep your boys in public school here. You know, you want to put them in a private school. You, you want to take them out. I was told that by one of the math teachers in mm-hmm. the middle school. So we did. We put both of my sons in a private school, uh, Gonzaga uh prep uh and the difference between the education that they received at gonzaga versus the education in the public school system everything from from classes that were made available um Mm -hmm. that didn't exist to how they scored on uh, the various sats and whatnot uh, for college admission were dramatically different So is it fair for a a parent to look at public school and say, you know, they suck. They just simply, they do not 
provide the kind of education that this country should provide. Uh, and, and, and in the data, and I'm sure you know the data, uh, comparatively against all other nations, you know, we don't do well at all. Well, so is, so is it fair for parents to uh, criticize their public schools? Um, I mean, I'm not going to judge what a, any one family does for their kids. That is by no means my place, and I make a point not to do that. Uh, that's one this to be, you know, I, instead, I want to point out there's this growing trends that are shaping education. And while any one decision may make sense for a particular family, the the cumulative result of these have broader impacts that we need to be aware of. And do our schools suck? Um, no, actually. A lot of the differences we see in, let's say, international standards, international comparisons, uh, which is a great way of measuring how our national level school system. Uh, when the U.S. does not um, perform at the same level as other of peer nations, let's say in student, you know, math, for instance, uh, STEM, a lot of STEM classes. Right. A lot of that is because of the gross inequalities we have in our school system, our class inequalities in our school system. If we just pull out the scores of those students who are of higher income in the U.S. Uh, and compare that internationally, we do just fine. Actually, so the real issue, or how well, I mean, if not higher income families and than well resourced schools, so the real issue is less about um, the inherent failures of our school system. The real issue is the inequality within our school system. Uh, I would say. Okay, but you know, and I, I guess I'm gonna just play devil's advocate here for a minute. Um, the local high school is supported largely by property taxes. And all the time that I was paying to put my children uh, through private school, I was paying tax money uh, to cover public school. There's no out on that. In other words, the same amount of money goes into public education, whether you put your children in private school or you don't. But when you what you're saying is that if you... Uh, have a little better income, you can afford to put them in a private school, you put them in a private school, we could take those students and compare them internationally, and they would do very well. But the public school, who's not been robbed of any funds whatsoever, who indeed maybe has had less pressure put on them because these brighter students, uh, at least as a result of their education, aren't competing with them, they're still doing miserably. So I'm asking you, how, how do you justify um, separating the two as though taking out private students or, or students that go to private school somehow damages the public school? Um, so, again, I wouldn't agree that they do miserably, but that's not the point of the question. The question you're asking is um, when you pull students out of the public school and put them in private school um, and they – in the public schools, students still do poorly, right? Then how right. you uh, then the question then is uh, how do you justify how do you explain them doing poorly, given that the um, public school some of the kids left the private school. The issue there are various things around this, right? When you pull uh, students out of public school and put them in private school, which again I think it can be fine. I, I don't I'm not that you know concerned about personally. Um, 
what happens then, and it's not true for you or for any particular family, but the family's engagement with the public school declines. And then the appetite for, you know, let's say voluntarily increasing your taxes to pay for the public school system also declines because you don't have a child in there, not you per se, but that parent doesn't have a child in there. And therefore the motivation goes down. There are ways in which pulling kids out of the private, out of the public school system can um, impact uh, the uh, the funding that the school system gets. And sometimes in some states, property taxes, of course, shape public school funding, but there's also a per pupil funding measurement as well. Um, and so the more students that leave an area, right, schools can lose money as a result. It's not like the money always just goes there no matter who goes to the school or not. So there's very, it's more complicated than, you know, um, than I think that. And, and again, I don't think that our public schools are failing miserably. I think that some are uh, underperforming for sure, but I wouldn't say all of them are. You know, I've never heard that articulated before. So are you saying that public schools uh, are really opposed to families, uh, you know, seeking supplemental education or alternative education? Uh, no. I mean, the public schools aren't opposed. In fact, so one one place uh, that I'm, um, your listeners may, may know of is called Mathnasium, you know, one of the fastest growing companies of any kind in our country. Um, and that is an after-school math center. So again, again, my point being that this is a major trend going on. And by the way, it's um, a trend that's growing under COVID. So anyway, that's a different topic. But right. uh, th- it partners with the public school system and, and hosts events inside public schools. Public schools are not uh, anti-learning centers, but teachers uh, see increased academic pressure and mental health challenges for students who feel pressured in part due to being already in a challenging public school curriculum and then adding after school education onto that when the child does not show a need for um, tutoring, right? So in other words, the child is not behind grade level, the child does not have trouble keeping up with grade level, but paying for after school tutoring still may be something the parents want. Again, that's fine. But parents need to realize that when we do this, we are there are social costs and possibly personal costs for our kids, and that's kind of the uh, missing as part of that's missing in our discourse around this. Um, but at the same time, like I said at the beginning, my goal is not to demonize these parents. My goal is to better understand them because a lot of other parents who aren't doing this, but they're but kids in their school are getting tutored. Those parents do demonize the parents who are getting who are seeking tutoring. Um, without necessarily needing it. And so I wanted to shed light on the meaningful motivations these families have that guide them to double down on education, even when, right, there's no clear external pressures to do so. You, you mentioned COVID. You know, a lot of changes have taken place, of course, in distance learning uh, for a long time, you know, it's just basically been looked down by uh, traditional academia. Now everything is distance learning. Uh, do you think this impact of COVID and all this distance learning is deteriorating the quality of the education our young people are getting today? Well, I don't think we know the answer to that yet. I hate to kind of punt, but that really is true. We don't know the answer in terms of uh, at the higher education level, in terms of like 
primary school, there's a lot of evidence. And I'm not um, fluent in it, but that uh, that there was a lack, a loss of learning, or a less least less education was was able to be imparted. Again, especially based on the um, families that don't have the same resources as others. If you don't have an internet connection, if you don't have a, a quiet place to work, right? If you don't have you know uh, parental guidance that's you can um, that's focused on your education inside of the home, then it makes it harder for those kids to uh, excel, right, in the in the remote learning environment. And so you're going to see gaps. So I think that what this, this remote learning has done, it's less that remote learning is inherently flawed, but it's more that remote learning um, reveals or worsens the gaps we already have between those who have um, better access to quality learning and those who don't. And I think you make a really good point about a very touchy subject right this minute that, you know, I'm just going to ask to ask you, you mentioned social costs, and now you just explain why it's so difficult for so many students to even keep up. What do you think about, should we put our children back in school this fall? Uh, I think that's, that's a great question. And I think it's on everyone's mind, obviously. I think ultimately, ultimately, that's a local level decision. I think that there's, you know, there's so many different factors. The, you know, beyond the ones we already mentioned, it's the teachers themselves and the administrators. How safe do they feel? Um, what? So I think depending on the locale, if the virus seems under control, if the school has protocols that teachers can buy into and that families and kids can buy into, then yeah, I think that's great. But I don't know if that's but you can't make a blanket assumption or um, extrapolate from a few schools to, you know, to even, you know, to a whole state, much less the whole country. Good answer. Also very politically correct, <laughs> Professor. <laughs> Allison Pugh says about your book, hypereducation shows how race saturates the conversation about education. Is that true? In many ways, yes, and, and um, so part of the, I, I don't know, what, um, so part of how race saturates the conversation is that, you know, the experiences of, of students of color uh, vary diff- uh, widely from those of white students, and even uh, between themselves, students of color, uh, inside the school system. Um, and so in that sense, in that most obvious way, race impacts how education, how people exp- um, feel about school and, and experience um Education, even when whites are, are not the let's say the the most um, highest performing group in a school, right? Race can still matter. Um, that's one of the things that I found as well, right? In, in some of the schools I studied, uh, Asian American students were outperforming whites in terms of academic you know outcomes, but even uh, but still, uh, teachers and administrators and families would uh, would treat those kids as somehow a problem rather than a group to emulate, like, you know, and so uh, just because a group is doing, is, is performing the best, doesn't mean they're going to be applauded for that. And that has to do somewhat, not entirely, with the race of those who are, who are performing the best and those who aren't. So race does matter in our school system in ways that are somewhat obvious and somewhat surprising. All right. How do we fix this public system? Uh, well, again, I don't think the public system is inherently broken. Um, 
and we can disagree about that, which is a fun conversation. But um, but to the extent that I think this is what there are issues to be fixed, nonetheless. Um, and I think one of the things we have to ask is what do we want out of a school system? That I think is a fundamental question. You know, look at our COVID moment right now, where you know we're um, struggling through this. It's a real uh, question of how we're going to turn the corner. And part of it has to do with our, the lack of, you know, protective, proactive efforts um, uh, by our people, by us, uh, in terms of mask wearing and social distancing and everything else. So what I'm, what I'm getting at is this. You know, right now, people showing compassion towards one another and going out of their way and saying, I will give up some of what I want, some of my personal preferences or freedoms, because I, it's for the sake of the collective, is really essential. And yet we don't necessarily demonstrate as a people a sense of compassion for others. And to what degree can our school system, right, be educating students, not just in reading, writing, and arithmetic, but also in certain social values that we, we believe, that the locality believes, are really important, right? And that's one thing we can ask them about our school system right now. Are we teaching our kids not just skills they need, uh, but also in terms of getting ahead and acing a test and making it into college, but also... I got what you. It, I'm, I'm uh, sorry to cut you off, sir, but we are out of time. I want to thank you for sharing your work with this professor. It's a great book. I recommend it to everybody. We've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place, and do tell your friends. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.